Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Ryan Altis. As a guest, Ryan is a psychonaut, YouTuber, and host of the Naked Guru in Thailand podcast. Academically trained in psychology, his mission is to reconcile religious viewpoints with psychedelic revelation to give a holistic view of spirituality that is grounded and rooted in authenticity. Love to have you on the podcast, man. It's a very interesting topic, and maybe I can delve into it. Like my craziest psychedelic experience was once when I took mushrooms in Amsterdam and I went to a sensory deprivation tank for two hours. Yeah. And then I went to the Van Gogh Museum, you know, and when I went out of that sensory deprivation tank, you know, I still have it as an Evernote. I had really a deep conversation with myself, talking with myself to my higher self. So much wisdom that was inside me when I was willing to ask those questions. And also what it has shown me is that what you feel influences what you see and what you see influences what you feel and perceive. So that interaction between your worldview and the feedback, this is something I call it like pearls of perception that I took mm. away from those moments as a data of myself that showed me like that consciousness and that way of perception and how, how that influences your view of reality that manifests. How do you have the first psychedelic experience or what were some pearls of perception, pearls of wisdom that you got from your first entity experiences with psychedelics? Well, actually, no, first, thanks for inviting me to uh, talk on your podcast. I love what you're doing here. I checked out your stuff. Thank really you. interesting. You're giving people a platform to voice controversial people sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. It's something I've been trying to do also with my podcast over the years. You know, it's funny because you find a lot of people, there's still a large number of people that take psychedelics that uh, just want to get fucked up. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that's fine. That's completely fine. And I, I, for me, in my early years of university and, you know, just experimenting, that's what it was. It was just a party mm-hmm. and it was beautiful colors and, and the music was great. And, and there was nothing more to it. And I never recognized anything to it then in my, in my 20s. As I, I left the UK after my psychology degree, I was finished. I was kind of called to leave. I, I walked out of a, a very good job. and I came and lived uh, over in Thailand at the age of 21. Here I, I learned the, the language and I opened a jazz lounge. I'm a saxophone player. And I got heavily addicted to alcohol. My relationship with alcohol was, now I recognize it was a kind of low-level spiritual search. But at the time, it was, it was killing me for a number of years. For, uh, my affair with it lasted around eight years. And the first four were just a fantastic party, having your own bar and, and, and having some great times and playing with some fantastic musicians. Amazing times of my life. But the last four, it got me. And it got me, it almost took me over and almost possessed me. You know, they call them spirits for a reason. And, you know, I was right on the edge of death. I, my liver was nearly cirrhosed. I mean, it was, it was getting pretty bad. I was twice my current weight. And I was very depressed and somewhat suicidal. I was ready to die and really, really on the edge. But my life on the outside, people would think, wow, this guy's rock and roll. Like every single night I'm on stage in front of hundreds of people. Financially, I was, I was doing well for a young guy. I mean, I mean, I'm only 32 now, 33. I was doing very well, but on the inside dying. And one day in Cambodia in a villa, some friends brought some LSD. And we thought we we're just going to get messed up. I'd been drinking all day and all the previous nights. My plan was to kind of burn out, you know, just fuck it, fuck the world, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. And we did the LSD and then boom, everything clicked for me. All my psychological research and psychology has been something throughout my life I've continued to read, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Carl Jung. All of that slotted into place with my learning of Asian religions because I'd been over in Thailand, learned about Buddhism, learned about Hinduism. The LSD experience took me into a place where it never done when I was just partying and doesn't seem to do for everybody. Uh, I still have friends that don't understand what I'm talking about when I talk about this. And it took me into a place of where everything became clear of what the religions, which at the time I was a hardcore atheist, 
through that atheism, I'd learned so much about religions that I, because I was so anti-religion, that I had all this information in my head running around. LSD, that particular experience showed me what it was that Jesus was talking about, what it was that Buddha was talking about, what, what the Hindus talk about when they talk about the self. When you, you were just saying on your mushrooms, you could have a conversation with yourself. Well, this is something in, in Hinduism that's yeah, one, one of the things that I uh, notice when I take uh, LSD or uh, mushrooms, it's the only things that I take like once in a while because I feel I take something away from it. When I took other drugs in the past, it was fleeing. It was like, how was it? Man, I was fucked up. And some people tell me what I did the next day, but I don't take something away with it. But that interconnectedness of things, of your view, your place in the world, other people, your relationship with those things, that is something that really get like highlighted when I take LSD or mushrooms. Yeah. You see the interconnectivity of things, the oneness of things, the unity of things, the underlying unification. And I think that many of our community now know what I'm talking about. This is not a revelation. It's people are taking ayahuasca to, to heal. People are taking LSD to heal. And, and I, I think what happened and what happens to a lot of people is who I thought I was died. And mm -hmm. what was left was a deeper of who I really was. So the Ryan I thought I was, the identity I thought I was, it was on a low-level spiritual search through alcohol, uh, was gone. And there I was healed because I no longer needed the alcohol to kind of reconcile my trauma or my attachment to who I thought I was. That Ryan who was sitting there, who was like in a low vibration state, alcohol, like almost close to death, etc. Could you describe a bit that dialogue, those questions that you had in that moment? Because you, now you speed it up a little too late, I found the answer, but I'm wondering like, what conversation did you have with that Ryan that was sitting there, which was wasting his life and addicted to alcohol? What, what happened specifically at that moment? So you mean pre-LSD? Pre yeah, because you took those L that LSD. And then what conversation did you have with that Ryan that was sitting there? Because at, unless you're Eckhart Tolle, it's not a sat on a bench. I became enlightened and that was it, right? Like what, what did that Ryan who was sitting there, who was addicted to alcohol, was like facing or what questions or story did he dissect at that moment? It's funny, when you're rooted deeply within who you think you are uh, and your character and your story, you don't see much beyond it. You don't, you don't realize there's a deeper perspective or a higher vibration or consciousness that you can look from. You're very much deeper than your story. My story was that we live in a material reality and uh, our religions are complete nonsense. It's just airy-fairy stuff. I was very Richard Dawkins-esque. I was very Christopher Hitchens-esque. I would argue to the moon with you if you tried to preach your religion to me. And, and I was living in that material universe. And, and within that, when you die, you die. Everything has no end. There is no rebirth. There is no, there is no the self replicating itself uh, to infinity. None of that is, is there. And so I'm limit, you're limited by your belief systems. And those belief systems are who you think you are. I think I'm this person. And I think reality is this. Now, this psychedelic, when it works, I, I must think maybe it chooses you in some way, mm -hmm. but when it works, works efficiently, you're kind of, from, from my understanding, you're initiating the death-rebirth process while in, in one form. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of evidence now for reincarnation. I, I believe that... It's you go to the underworld in the Jungian way, right? Rescuing the dead father, facing your fears, rewriting the story, and then coming out of the shadows. Exactly, and Jung's underworld is is what he would also refer to as the collective unconscious, which is what you were just saying about interconnectivity. You're dying to who you thought you were, joining with who you really are, which is, in essence is the self, is God, is me, is you, and then coming back into this form. And that process can be done on an iterative process. So from the moment that happened and I begin to understood what the psychedelic was, it wasn't a drug, it was a doorway, or it was a tool in order to initiate this process. That's when my life turned around and I began then talking to people like Rick Strassman, who wrote DMT, The Spirit Molecule. I started to reach out to different uh, psychonauts, people that Stan Groff and, uh, and serious people that, have, that I'd never read before, but came to find that they'd come to the same conclusion as I did. And then I continued over the past five years to initiate that death and rebirth process on, you know, three to 500 micrograms of LSD under control conditions. And then to try to kind of document what is that process? What is really going on here? And each time you can bring something a little bit more back to start to get a, a fuller picture of, of 
what may be happening. Then you can cross-reference your research with people like Stan Groff or Ram Dass or Alan Watts or all of the greats, Terence McKenna, do a meta-analysis of everybody's research and say, right, what's different and what's the same? Because we came up with these conclusions objectively and independently. So that's what science is. Science is a replica, replicating the same thing over and over again and, until you find a consistent result, which is then peer-reviewed. So I was doing my own inner research of what this is and then cross-referencing that with people like Ram Dass, Alan Watts, Terence McKenna, and finally, what's the truth here? Are these things portals of perception and they open it? Or do have we have a society or other things in society that block those innate doors in ourselves? I, th- I think that the psychedelic are doorways, but there are other doorways. So there, there are things like deep trauma can have a, an elastic effect on the being that believes. Deep trauma drives you deep into your ego. And the deeper into your ego, the more chance you have of breaking it to pieces and realizing the illusion of who you thought you were. And I think that can also happen with things like travel. As you start to travel the world and you see, ah, every human being is kind of doing the same thing. They've got a mom and dad, a house. They're trying to make a living. Oh, we're not as different as I thought we were. Hold on a minute. We're not different at all. There is absolutely no difference other than the superficial between any of us. We're all actually just the way a cell makes up this body. Each being is a fractal of a, of a larger being, which, which we know as the one being is of the self. But then there are some pitfalls of the process too. But because because that, that, that's something that I noticed like in the spiritual community sometimes, like I, I describe it in three stages. Some people take drugs in a general way to numb themselves, to escape, you know, escape maybe to, to get away from themselves. And other people can also get addicted to these drugs. They have no stability in themselves. They keep on fleeing from themselves, you know? And they think like, I'm finding myself, I'm finding myself. That's a bit the difference also in language between I'm searching myself, I'm fleeing, I'm escaping, then discovering you can still find something, but it comes from a place of wonder. Let's see what it is is like. But there's like a stable self. And I met this a lot in the spiritual community that they go from spiritual practice to spiritual practice or for drug to drug without any stable system. So there's also something stable within oneself that one needs to hook into because else you can be lost in the search for yeah, that consciousness that we are, that connectedness that we are, that is always there. But th- that kind of balance in between exploring it and not getting hooked on it. H- how do you look at it? Exactly. And and it's an important point that I think I'm hearing more and more in the community as well, is how do you ground it? And how do you then behave in authenticity? Because when you die to who you thought you were, the initial impetus is to then think, well, if I wasn't that, who am I? And then you make a new you. And we call that the secondary level of the ego. It's the spiritual ego. Well, I wasn't that guy that was drinking and the musician now i'm a spiritual guru and that's why my channel is called the naked guru because it's about eliminating this taking off the, the secondary ego as well and recognizing the illusion of that and the ego is ad infinitum because the universe is ad infinitum it, it will create a tertiary ego and a, and a quattro ego and i'm talking to you from the point of the ego now i'm no egoless but the more we can come to observe that Oh, yeah, the yogi me, the one that's doing yoga and doing the ceremony as well, has facets of inauthenticity because the ego has gone in through the back door and you you are still rooted in the separation you were rooted in when you thought you were who you thought you were in the first place. You're still rooted in separation because there can be kind of levels of competitiveness. I'm a competitive meditator. I can meditate longer than you can. I'm, I'm more spiritual than you are. I know God more than you do. And, and this spiritual Olympics, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny because there's nothing wrong with it. And I also went through it in, in the first I'm phase. more authentic than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we're at now. I'm, I'm more authentic than you are. I mean, look, I'm highlighting this, so ergo, I must be more authentic, right? It, and it's tricky, and it's tricky. And psychedelics at some point are not going to help solve this if we're not integrating. And we hear it again and again, you've got you to spend your time in God and then spend your time in human. And, and, and be human, go to the shop, do your shopping, you know, hang out with your kids. Use the incarnation. Don't just go off into, you know. The, the issue is people get caught up in I'm God, which is true. 
but so is everybody else. Yeah, that's bringing back the boon, what Joseph Campbell talks about, uh, and Watts also talks about a lot, like, you know, like grounded spirituality, also bring it out in the real world, still be human. What is your relationship to the ego? Because sometimes the ego is seen as the enemy. Isn't it a kind of compass, a kind of vast, a kind of navigational device for this individualized experience that also can be a bulwark against all the chaos of endless possibilities drifting in the ocean of chaos? I mean, which sounds nice, but isn't the ego not completely the enemy and it's a matter of like integration to navigate this personal conscious and experience in your incarnate body how do yeah, you look I mean, at the, the relationship with the ego and what role it plays it, it, it's a beautiful beautiful divine instrument the ego you know Terence McKenna used to say you need to you, you need to have the ego or if you went out for dinner you wouldn't know whose mouth to put the food in <laughs> you know you need you need that step you separation is a product the separation is a product of the ego and separation is a blessing because from what i can see there's only one of us here and from what i can see we're not matter is the illusion mind is the reality mind is crystallizing into matter and forming separation and the ego is the construct that allows us to navigate that without the ego you cannot navigate that and without that there's no experience because without the separation there's no being no separate being to experience anything uh, no time, past and future, to experience it within. So this, the ego allows for the separation, which allows for being. So you can't, getting rid of your ego, you're just going back to where you were. Yeah, I love a quote by Peter Marchand, like enlightenment is the ultimate solution to the problem that never existed. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> and also, yeah, I mean, I'm enlightened what I went to enlightenment, but who is saying that? How can you notice your enlightenment? That's, then you must step in the ego or frame it or step outside of it because I, how else would you notice it? I'm wondering, you know? Well, en enlightenment is the new rich. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be rich anymore. I want to be in, in, enlightened. There's nothing wrong with this also. I'm not also trying to be judgmental mm -hmm. on it. But to be conscious of the process and look at its comical intricacies, particularly if you're in, you know, in, in session, as I call it. So if you're, if you're within an LSD or mushroom session, to kind of see it, it it's a very funny, funny state of affairs because we're always chasing our tail. And I think that many of us then come to, come to this kind of conclusion that there's not, nothing to chase any, anymore. The, the, the only thing left to do is... is to be and to marvel at it and to enjoy it uh, in, in every moment and, and to kind of focus on that. That's all, all there really is in, in the end. You enjoy this incarnation. You enjoy this taste of death because beyond it, there is no death. And I love this concept of the shadow. Also a great fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, by the way. I mean, enlightenment is shedding light on. And when you shed light on something, it also has a shadow. So it's a matter of integrating it. If you don't want to deal with your shadows or see your shadows, then you just have to go to the dark. Yeah, that's, that's where you don't see your shadows, but that doesn't mean they're not there. You just don't notice them. So that's the whole thing that I love of that self-development. Let's focus on the future, the spirituality. Let's focus on the present. And then psychology, let's focus on the past, you know, or shadows and integrate it. I always love an approach that has those three things. And I often see like people who are into spirituality who could use some psychology, people in psychology who could use some, you know, spirituality. For me, it's about integration of those things without having that self-development ego, spiritual ego, you know. I think, you know, I'm seeing more and more people working on themselves. And that's a good thing. I think that more and more people taking personal responsibility and say, and, you know, not everybody's dealt the same cards and some people have got a lot of shit to kind of deal with that, that I think, you know, fair play to you. If you want to do yoga and you want to get enlightened, go and do that. That's the mission. That's the pursuit. That's what Buddha was doing for most of his life, you know, follow it. Like, but I think ultimately what we're searching for is unification all the time, whether it's through the alcohol, through sex, through something, through yeah. my spiritual practice, we're always looking for unification. You only find unification by realizing everything is already unified without anything, without any. Eventually, the psychedelic is, is not required because you can come in and out so many times that you, you start to kind of just meditate on that. Oh, yeah, that tree there. Wow. Doesn't it look like a lung? Oh, yeah, that's because it's the same thing. That person there, don't they have a very similar skeletal structure to me? In fact, isn't it exactly the same? Oh, yeah, because it's all one thing. And you come to this meditative space of, okay, it's all one. But that doesn't need, mean that me and you need to stare intently at each other yeah. and, and look how present we are. 
it's like you can be spiritual and grounded too. You can, you can still watch football if that's what you do. You can still engage in human activities. You can watch the TV, you know. Some people say, I never watch TV. It's no less spiritual because everything is spiritual. And if you want to see enlightenment, look into the eyes of the child because the child is enlightened. It's the closest thing to the one, the closest thing to the source that you can find. And, and I think that's because I think a big factor of that is language. So what we do, thought is rooted in separation because thought is language and, uh, and language is categorization. So language automatically says, hey, that's you and this is me. So we, we, we construct our reality through linguistic syntax, very limited linguistic syntax, A-E-I-O-U, and, and the combinations thereof with the consonants. This is a very limited code and framework that you then say, well, you know, this is reality rooted in separate separation. And then when it's not enough, the being says something's not right here. I want to be unified with everything that is. Well, you can't do that within thought. Because yeah, yeah. what I like about, about psychedelics is that you can have that, you know, we think we're just one thing, but we're actually a story. We're a narrative. We're like a role being played. And according to the situation, we or that role can possess us. But what with me, those psychedelics do is I can have me having that experience. I can look at me having that experience. I can have me having that experience at that point in time. I can see that stretched out, you know, during what I've been through and what I can, my potential, and then me connected with other people and my relationships with them. So I see those different standpoints, which I almost never do because I don't get away from myself and then look at all these aspects, zoom in and zoom out. And that is something what these psychedelics really do to me to see like, oh, this is like, you know, how we can approach it, look at it, you know, context wise, your perception, you know, you're not just this. I mean, that's my experience with it, right? I don't know what your experience is, but that was like a conversation, which sometimes can be a bit confronting because we have so much noise and busyness that we get away with when we take a breather, you know, and then allow to have a conversation with us. I truly believe there is a lot of wisdom in us. If we ask these questions, if we take a pause, if we look at ourselves, if we get away from ourselves, I think that's often so important why we travel. We get away from all those attachments and memories and we can have a fresh perspective on ourselves. So that, that's really what I like about it. Yeah. And, you know, something I, I touch upon quite a lot is, and it, it, it can get a little bit tricky, but it, it's the idea of collective agreements. But actually, our, our reality is only a set of collective agreements. So, you know, at one point, we all stood around and said, okay, the world's flat. And we all agreed it was. And therefore, the experience reality of the world was that it was flat. Now we say it's a sphere. And that's our experience reality. I'm not saying it's not a sphere, but it could be something far more profound than an infinite universe. It could be something far more. The idea of money, a £20 note is a £20 note only because me and you say it. If I go to the uh, tribe in Africa and say, hey, can I buy your pig? And I give them a £20 note, they're going to say, well, what the hell is that? The £20 note doesn't actually exist outside of, a, of the collective agreement of what it is. We're seeing this with cryptocurrency now. Cryptocurrency have no inherent value, but neither does fiat money. But through a collective agreement of each one of us as nodes in the wider Gaian mind or the universal mind or what I would call God, but I don't like to use that word, but it's the same thing. We, we decide together uh, a collective co-creation of what that reality is. And one day there won't be a £20 note. There are no £20 notes on Saturn. There is no past and future on Saturn because there's no population there to say there is. So as you start to become woke, and I use that term uh, lightly as well, but the more we're able to <laughs> yeah. step back and step back and step back to kind of see what's going on, we experience something Jesus called revelation, but what we now call a download. And through receiving more and more of that, you can start to see collective agreement. Oh, yeah, we're all behaving. Like, here's the shopkeeper. I'm the shopkeeper. What can I do for you today? I'm the customer playing the role of customer. We act in, in, in that way. And what you were just saying then is when you travel and you see this wider view, oh, you, you're starting to see the connections and mm -hmm. the collective agreements that we're all a part of. And soon you'll find yourself not, not part of those collective agreements. Like I'm not English. When I left England, I was very English. Now I realize that's a nonsense, complete nonsense. Like this is just a, an area of a planet within a universe. There is no such thing. And so I think what becoming conscious is, is not just becoming calm and, and kind of uh, meditative. I think it's also understanding ignorance 
and, and overcoming ignorance and illusion, which is becoming more aware of practical beliefs, which is what the Hindus have said for forever. Yeah, I, I learned a lot about Maya this year because you did psychology. I did sociology. People see that technology advanced a lot, Wi-Fi, et cetera, faster, et cetera. We have a lot of wisdom in psychology and sociology, but what I've realized, and people can look up the Tavistock Institute or other organizations or MK Ultra, what they did is they did a lot of research about trauma, a lot of things about fear, a lot of things about propaganda. Look up Edward Bernays, the nephew of Freud, who was the grandfather of propaganda, and realized that a lot of people, their behavior is based on irrational things, and he used them to get votes for politicians or have people buy. But they're not being used by the mainstream things, even these things with like psychedelics. But we have so many things that could help people connect, get inside, not just on fear polarization, get votes, have them consume, no, to get them together, to unite. But that is like almost secret wisdom, it's that we've been having psychological research for more than 100 years now, social research also, bystander effect, what makes people do heroic things. But they don't get into the forefront of every education to help people connect. So there are some people who use that to polarize, consume, set people up against each other. While when you take these drugs in a safe environment, it helps people connect. It helps people, you know, get certain insights. But I see a lot of insights from psychological and sociological research not being used to the full benefits to connect people and help people. I mean, that's my perception from having a really deep dive into everything that's going on right now and that collective agreement, that way how we see reality, that there is vast wisdom with so many things, religion, archetypes, fairy tales, psychology, sociology, but it often is not being used, especially by politicians, media, to actually help people and help them connect with each other. Well, you know, I, I think also this is because the way on an individual level one has an individual ego, it can be very resistant to this kind of thing, this kind of mm. open-mindedness. It can be resistant because this is the death of who you think you are. If you do mm. a large dose DMT or a significant LSD experience, your ego is going to be dissolved and die. And, and, and so the ego gets defensive and resists it. Now, the ego appears to us on many levels. There is one, which is the individual level, and then there is the collective uh, ego on multiple levels. So you could say right-wing political party, left-wing political party, each node individual makes up part of one collective ego. And it's not in their interest to dissolve th th those egos because there'll be... Who be it's, it's the, the end death to who they are, yeah. yeah. It's the death of left and right, because when you realize there is no, the left and right are like the left and right hemispheres of the brain. You're, mm. you're acting on left hemisphere. I mean, to simplify it, you're acting on right hemisphere. And then what, what reality is doing or what God is doing, the mind of God, the mind of the cosmos, is it's using both sides against each other to find a, a, an intermediate, the middle way of the yin and yang to yeah to the same thing when i looked at it i have a controversial post about the whole uh, israeli-palestinian conflict and i said like it's nonsense i stand for israel it's nonsense i stand for palestinian i see poor people suffering regular citizens suffering for power abuse i can advocate why jewish people are suffering i can advocate how palestinian people are suffering action reaction action reaction and then they blame it on one side i don't choose a side but i just look higher up how's it being used politicized weaponized while most people just regular people suffer from it and i just you know feel for them both you know mm -hmm. i mean the, the, what I have faith in, though, is when you delve deeper through the use of these tools into the collective psyche, into the collective unconscious, you realize that the intelligence there is pr profoundly vaster than human intelligence. And mm -hmm. I, I believe what's going on is a part of an unfolding process which has, has a logic to it and and ultimately, we'll go in the direction that it wants to do. It may seem it's going in the wrong direction sometimes, but I actually, I, I have faith that it is. Do you think on a spiritual level, this is some, just something that works itself out? Because one thing that I feel with all this technology, that no matter how you look at connectiveness, it's vibration, it's energy, it's frequency. I see sometimes people re replacing that connection with digital connection, and it can sometimes interfere with a level of awareness or consciousness. Do you think organically, you know, like it will still take over, you know, and manifest itself? Or do you think there's a bit of repression through all the technological means right now that stops or slows down the awakening? 
My view is quite controversial. So mm -hmm. because I, I think the technology is an extension of ourselves, I don't see any separation between it. So I don't see any separation between me and the phone. The phone is me. The the Wi-Fi is is part of the collective consciousness behind matter. The matter is is an illusion. The phone is an, an illusion. But behind it, the Wi-Fi is real, and behind the matter is mind. And I think what what I think is happening, and I'm not saying I'm correct, but with my dialogue with the mushroom, is that mind crystallizes into form in order to adventure and explore itself throughout the cosmos. And that form is constantly evolving and changing. So it's the fish coming out of the sea onto the land, the land mammals coming into the into the human, same consciousness, same thing. And then eventually we are digitizing. So I, I think that that consciousness is going into AI and becoming the, the future human, which actually is very energy efficient. It has all human perspectives in itself and it can it can travel the cosmos without you know a spaceship or something like that that we would we would require and it, it seems it's it's coming into that kind of what we call a singularity so you're positive that that's like what we thought were working for me because I often have people who are very wary about it the things that i sometimes have about transhumanism is who will program their morals their ethics their freedom of will their choice a lot of things that make us human so i I'm thinking like who will decide what to integrate with that uh, matter or robots etc that will be like the the watchmaker, the person who's going to play God by, you know, what, what shall we input and how shall we merge humans with technology? And what do you think essentially is human, makes us human? And will we well, still have that when we merge with technology, you feel? Well, again, I believe we already merge with technology because mm. I see technology as an extension of the self. So I don't see any separation there, but it's the same question of who programmed our model, morals and ethics because it wasn't a separate God because you are God and I am God and, and we've kind of come to some, I, I think we're all coming to some kind of agreement on this in some way. Although I live in my own little universe, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know sometimes, I don't know how widely believed this is worldwide, but, but who programmed our moral, morals? We did. And who's programming the AI moral, morals? Well, we are. And what is the AI? Well, it's us. It's all the same, the same thing. There is no, oh, a human is, is playing God by, by programming the AI, the human is God already. So what do you, would you define as being essentially human? Like what makes us human? What would separate us from other things and makes us, I mean, we're connected with everything, but that, what would you define as something essentially human? You know, again, the word human is just something we've labeled it. It's another syntactic term rooted in language, which allows for separation. It's like, my name is Ryan, your name is Philip. But what, what relevance does that have to anything? It's, it's just a word that we've applied to, to a unity in order to create a separation. Or we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. There's you and I. They are, again, words that we've, I projected, you're over there and I'm over here. There is no over there and over here. It's all here. It's all now. And it's all one in, in, in my perspective. So there is no human or animal uh, the human and the animal are of one phenomena. You know, you look at an animal, it's the way it moves, the way it, the skeletal systems uh, are made, the way it's conscious, the way it eats, the way a mother chicken, because I live on a farm here, and I was yeah. watching the chickens today, and I was watching the mother chicken protect the baby chicken. And I thought, you know, wow, it's no different to us because it is us. It's all one. So when I look around and I see the tree, my practice, especially these past two years, has just been to constantly have that in, in my mind. That, that Although I call it a tree, it's not. Although we call it human, it's not. We are one and the same. And we can see that, you know, with the way the veins run through the arms is how the tree is. You know, how the, the bronchioles look is how the, the tree looks. How the cosmos looks is how the brain looks when we, when we neural map it. I mean, these things, there only seems to be a separation. It's interesting that I have a talk with you because I have a completely disutopian view that we're building like the Tower of Babel, that this is Atlantis that wanted to control everything with technology and it tried to achieve the godlike mode and it's going to destroy itself because it wants to control nature. And for me, it's going to get away from human nature. And I think then people will come back to themselves. The problem I have with technology is that people are not so strong as it will power. 
you can choose how you're going to use it, but it's almost like a temptation device, like a Pandora's box that, you know, it has a lot of options, but then you open it. It's like, ah, oh, another hour wasted. So yeah, with meditation, you can learn how to integrate, but it's just interesting that you have another view of see it's an extension of ourselves. I also believe that the, the, the consciousness we have right now is also a reflection a bit of the human consciousness or collective consciousness. One of the things I also would love to ask to you is what do you think of the theory of the Anita Mascaria that most of religions came from drug-induced experiences? Anita Mascaria is that... Uh, Mushroom, oh, that no, uh, spickled red, white mushroom. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful red and, yeah. and white mushroom. And be careful you get the right one. You know, I think it's just become quite clear to me that, you know, Moses in the burning bush, for example, that bush, mm -hmm. the Achaia bush, has the highest concentration of DMT of any other plant there. You know, it's, it, it's quite clear that if the bush was burning and he was breathing in those fumes, he was having some kind of DMT trip. Buddha is said to have died of eating wild mushrooms that mm. were given to him. Sometimes it's translated as pig. But um, so if anybody wants to check that, you, you will get that information too. But, you know, why was he eating wild mushrooms? It, it baffles me that someone could have gone through the whole life when the mushroom grows anywhere where there is a cow, anywhere where there's a water buffalo right behind me, could have gone their whole lives, especially someone like Buddha that starved himself that they did all kinds of crazy shit in order to try and find enlightenment, that he wouldn't have tried one of those mushrooms while sitting under that Bodhi tree and getting enlightened. And for me, that's the only contextual way that I can see it happening. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen to people with, without this. Uh, I think it does. Urquhart Toll is maybe one example. And I think that it happens to a lot of people that then they don't mention the psychedelic they conveniently kind of overlook that. And I think it takes some of us to come out and say, actually, no, it was... It was the teachers that taught me this. It wasn't just me that came up with it. It was the, it was the plants and, and the, the mushroom. But I think that a lot of people are worried about being socially ostracized. I think Einstein was dealing with things like this. Mm. And, and I think that if he came out and said, oh, by the way, it was psychedelics, all his credibility is gone because the collective ego that is science says that's no longer science. I mean, Rupert Sheldrake, who I also interviewed, talks mm -hmm. a lot about this. And, and, and I, I think Sir Francis Crick, for example, who, who came up with the shape of the DNA molecule. Yeah, together with before, Watson, right? Yeah. Yeah, shortly before his death came out and said, you know, sorry, I missed the fact that I was on LSD when I came up with that, with, with, the, with the, the, the double helix. And so I, I think that these things have played a part in all of this. And certainly you would understand the Hindu religion and the Christian. What was Jesus talking about when he was talking about the father? Oh, he was talking about, in his terminology, the self, what the Hindus call the self, what Buddha maybe would say, Dharmakaya, that there is the Atman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got Atman for Hinduism and then maybe Dharmakaya, the complete vast for Buddha. I mean, Hinduism and Buddhism practically agree on each other on everything but that. Yeah, you know, Hindus say it's the one self, Buddha says there is no self, it's a complete emptiness. And for me, they're both sides of a yin and yang anyway. What Jesus said was the kingdom of heaven within. Well, you know, take five grams of, of magic mushrooms and you may see the, the kingdom of heaven within. All, all of this is just what you have to do is contextualize it and put it in the language of the time. And you start to see that by the father, he meant the universe. By God, he meant the universe. And, and by the kingdom of heaven within, he meant the dimension of, of heaven within. It's very clear to me that the, these have always been a part of our culture. And I think that what Graham Hancock said, we've severed, severed our connection with spirit. That is our major problem. Uh, with the human race is that we have cut ourselves off from the vast intelligence of the cosmos. If you're not having some exposure to these plants, to wh where you come from, then you're going to live as if you're a separate nothing and you're going to be ill and you're going to be addicted and you're going to be unhappy. Yeah, because when you look at all the innate wisdom about the, the nadis, let's say, or acupuncture or the chakra vortexes, I mean, you kind of wonder like how these people so long ago have this wisdom. Or sometimes when you take psychedelics, you can see these mandalas or patterns or energy centers, you know, so you kind of wonder like, where is this wisdom coming from? Or when some people who work a lot with the fascia and they see how it all stretched out and they look at the third eye or how it's like connects like how could these people know this when we only find this out now you know so you really wonder where people get all this wisdom when they didn't have the scientific tools yet yeah and i think some of it is psychedelics and i think like i said before i think sometimes the collective unconscious can or the connection with the cosmic mind can spill through into certain individuals and I, 
I think Paul is, is probably an example of that, who went through his depressive moment and then came to understand, okay, who I thought I was isn't who, who I really was. And yeah, and I think, I think it's through multiple sources it can happen. I think there are some people that are constantly connected to that, that deeper mind. What in India they call the gurus. Although I haven't come across any one of them that I think is completely credible. In my own personal experience, I'm not saying there are none, but for me, I haven't seen any direct example of what Ram Das might say about Maharaji. You know, I, but I guess Ram Das would also say the guru is the self. You are your own guru. You are the guru. You know, the ultimate awakening is to realize you can't find it in anybody else. It's it's you. You're your own guru. Yeah, for me, it's more about perception. Do you think these uh, miracles that they saw was also drug-induced, or do you think that was something true about those actual miracles that they did? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if anything, you're going to believe water turning into wine. If I said, oh, yeah, you turn water into wine, it doesn't really make sense. But I said, he turned water into wine, everybody was on mushrooms. Oh, okay, right. Now it makes it makes some sense. And those records are from so long ago. You know, I mean, there have since been probably millions, if not billions, of Jesuses. I mean, there's a Jesus happening right now. Somebody is doing 500 micrograms somewhere and having the same experience as, as, as Jesus had. You know, and it, it'll finish and it'll come out and say, hey, everybody, guess what? <laughs> Uh, we're all children of God. We're we're all connected, and 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 that's happening all the time. So I don't know why we fixate so much on this. this Isn't that crazy that I hear someone speak like we're all connected, we're all son of God, and that's being seen as a crazy person? Like, what's wrong with that message? And somebody else could be like, Muslims are the problems. These are the problems, and they get into prime time. It's like, yeah, yeah, healthy debate. These people make sense. <laughs> as soon as <laughs> someone starts to talk about love and happiness, and I was connected, like, okay, this guy is completely crazy. Like, yo, if you call someone crazy, like, you know, I, I, that that more extreme message and depressing message. Maybe that's a bit extreme, you know? <laughs> each religion is pointing to one fundamental truth, the one fundamental truth, but each one is inherently wrong as well because each religion is itself a collective ego. I am Ryan. I am Christianity. And when you lock yourself in the collective ego, you shadow yourself from all of the other viewpoints. You say, my religion is right and yours is wrong, hence separation. When you come to study all the religions and say, oh, okay, now I see the common themes, you unify and you realize yeah, everybody's your brother. And that's why the golden rule is the golden rule throughout, universe, throughout all religions is treat others how you want to be treated because that's you. Don't steal from your neighbor because you're stealing from yourself. Don't kill your neighbor because like, you're killing yourself. Like, and that's the revelation all religions are trying to get to. And many people find that through religion. That's fine. Like it's, it's a good way through, but many people now don't distrust religions and they hate them and, and they become these hardcore atheists and then they miss the message. Yeah, I think it's a good, I mean, you can tell me your input that it's good to read some fundamental religious text or fundamental, not fundamentalist, but fundamental religious text or fundamental philosoph philosophical text. Because when you read that and then you have the experience, I mean, both of them, like philosophy and religion, kind of talk about the deeper things in life, right? And when you have that intention to go into that experience, then you can take some wisdom with it. Would you advise reading any material that you might be able to take in your journey, like I suggest some philosophy or religion, etc., text or fairy tales or mythology even? You know, Jung managed to do this without any psychedelics. Jung yeah. was somehow connected with, he, he saw all of this far deeper than I, I see it and, and far deeper than many others did. And he came out with it to the detriment of his credibility in the psychological community. And he, he came out and he said, he knew that guy. And he, I checked all of his letters I obviously read his um, memoir and his, his autobiography. And there's, he was against drugs. He was against masculine. He never tried any himself. So I don't know how he got there, but Jung is, is great reading, but it's a bit complicated. Mm -hmm. If you just read Paulo Coelho, the, the, the author, I mean, the alchemist is a metaphor for finding yourself. What do you think we mean when you say finding yourself? It's not finding Ryan, not finding Philip. It's finding the self, not yourself. And, and that's the journey of life. That's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. That's, that's what we're all up to. And, and so I think even that, I mean, every book, they say every book can lead you to realization, right? Every, every, no matter what you read, eventually you start seeing the patterns through it all. 
um, through the psychological data, the spiritual text, the religious text, and you come to a point of understanding that being is an act of love because, you know, it's, it's lonely in oneness. If the cosmos mm -hmm. is a oneness, it's a very lonely oneness, or at least in my experience. And it's a profound loneliness if it's oneness. It's an often overlooked symptom of understanding oneness is that there's loneliness there too. And so being is an act of love. The separation into me and you is how the one loves itself. It's, it's how the one experiences itself. Whereas I can say, I love you. You can say, you love me. We, we make love into an object. Although it is the fundamental basis of, of, of reality is love. Love is a synonym for God. God is a synonym for consciousness. Each of those three linguistic terms, the same thing, God, love, consciousness. And yeah, and so being is that act of love and separation. And what we're trying to do, each of us, is to find unification all the time with love and oneness. And it's often symptomatic of loneliness. You know, how, do, how lonely do people get when they have no friends and they sit and suicidal they can become, you know? That deep, profound loneliness, they'd rather kill themselves and join the the infinite timeless and i think that's it i think that's that striving for unification is often leads to addiction depression and the psychedelic can open the doorway to show you the reality uh, that that of where you come from and you can reconcile them and you can come back into separation with the knowing that death is an illusion you overcome your fear you you realize your infinite nature for people who are not well aware with like psychedelics or endogens, as you call it, could you give a little bit of an overview about you know, what's out there? And before we go into like safe use or, or what's the best context is or intention or group, etc. Could you give a little bit of overview of the most used things that are out there and what kind of the effects that they have, etc.? Yeah, and you know, some of this will be subjective as well. How I have different relationships with these things and you know mainly you can do it under legal more legal circumstances in the uk in thailand it's illegal so uh, mm. i don't do it there. but there are places in amsterdam and europe you can go and a place where you can do it legally and from my experience of this for me the mushroom has always been a teacher it's not just being me there looking through the landscapes it, there's been something else there which i, I kind of see as a, a spiritual hologram or, or a, a kind of spiritual uh, apparition of the mushroom itself it's almost like there is a, a teacher there and what they allow you to do what it, for me what it's been is it's allowed me to kind of take a deeper perspective on your life go back and revisit the reasons why you are the way you are healing through reconciliation and unification with oneness with with the cosmos and and dealing through your trauma things like that with, with the mushroom. It's always been a teacher. Now, I mean, there, there are far out landscapes and vistas within the, cosmo the, the mind of the universe that you can travel to. And some of those realms really, really out there. And on the higher doses, you can really go out there deep into imagination with obviously dragons and, and all, all kinds of, no, not with, not with the, the mushroom. Okay. The mushroom, it's always been kind of a unifying experience and one that's working through analytically any issues that I have. And we all have issues and we're all continuously working on ourselves as a process. I'm no finished product. Yeah, for, for uh, me, the mushrooms has been like a more natural thing that like LSD was a bit more perceptual for me and it was a bit more focused on the heart and like connection. But for me personally, right, like LSD was more playing with perspectives and mushrooms was more from the heart and warm and connecting and, and those things. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a little bit lighter on you. And with LSD, I'd say it's in, in two phases. There's the lower doses where you can have a similar experience than a mushroom. Of course, LSD is derived from ergot and ergot is a fungi as well. So we're talking about, again, this very similar thing. But on the higher doses, LSD can initiate the death rebirth experience. And your best guide to this is the Tibetan Book of the Dead. If you've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead or listened to it in audio book, then great. If not, check it out before you do any kind of high dose LSD. It will provide a map. Ramdas, Timothy O'Leary wrote the book, The Psychedelic Experience in the 70s, and they based it on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Dead basically shows, shows you that when you die, there are certain apparitions and landscapes and deities that you can meet uh, through that death experience. And on certain doses of LSD, you will 
it will be reflected what they've said in that book. Here, you can travel to what can be perceived as hell realms, but they're just facets of, of the personality of the psyche. In my worldview, everything is the psyche. The whole universe is the psyche. It's all mine. But while we're in this limited form, we only experience a small amount of it. The LSD will thrust you at, at high doses into the into the universal mind, into causal uh, reality. How much are we talking about here then? At that Maybe level? 400 to 500 micrograms, which uh, if you read Chris Bache's book, LSD in the Mind of the Universe, I also interview him on my podcast. He has documented over many years. He was a professor that had to keep his psychedelic use very, very secret for a long time. He documented 500 gram microdose sessions, 73 of them. And his detail in that is just profoundly beautiful because he, he describes how he went deeper and deeper into the, the oneness, the one mind, the one universal mind, what he referred to as the diamond luminosity of pure love, pure oneness, pure being, which, which we are only a fractal of. I don't know where we are, if we're at the edge or in the middle. I don't know, but we're only a fractal of it. The love that you can experience in this form is nothing in comparison to the love you experience in, in causal reality deep within the mind of the cosmos. And so LSD for me is a death rebirth experience. You'll die and come back into this, this form and you can learn from it what you can if you're taking notes. And the final one I'll mention is DMT, which my, my experience is less limited, uh, is more limited with it. But this one is completely out there. And I saw it as interdimensional travel. And in short, uh, right, it's 15 minutes max, right? The experience itself. Yeah, you're talking, mine were only eight to 10 minutes. Although, depending on the dose, they can feel like 10 hours, even lifetimes. This one, you can kind of puncture through to all kinds of different realities. And I think it's, I think they are dimensions in between us and God. Would you call it an outer body experience? Yeah, I think, you know, many people I talk to open their eyes through DMT. And I, I find, that's quite surprising to me. I, I kind of close the eyes and go inward, but on certain doses, this dimension will break apart uh, completely and you'll pop into another dimension. My experience, I was met by three large slender beings. And by the way, I've never been an alien UFO person. I'm just telling mm -hmm. you how my experience was. Mm -hmm. They were made of a, a, a dark marble and they had electric, blue electric running through the body, two female, one male. And um, I was shitting myself because I thought, shit, what the hell is going on here? Mm -hmm. And I, I said to them, don't uh, hurt me. My heart is pure. I said something along those mm -hmm. lines. And the male one said, yes, we know you. We know all about you. And the two females put their hand on my head and a kind of blue or white light ran through the body. And the, the male kissed me on the lips. And it was almost like a complete download through through the mouth into the body. And, and then they said, you know, we have to go now. And I didn't want to go, but I had to go. And then I came back into the, into the body where I was lay uh, on the bed with a duvet because your body temperature will drop uh, quite high when you do DMT. I think it is to do with that kind of transportation effect. Now, for some people that may be listening, especially some of my subscribers that are not so uh, into psychedelics, some of them. You can, if you want to delve deeper into this, Andrew Gallimore is a PhD psychologist that's studying this in Tokyo, and he's doing scientific trials on this to show that what I'm saying is not uh, a hallucination, but actually a replicable fact. And then I also point you to Rick Strassman's work, who wrote the. When I would look at you going through the experience, would you just be lying down for the observer, like who, who looks at you, what everything that you described? Are you acting it out, or are you just like lying down? It's all just perceptual. Mainly, mainly lie, lying down, breathing very heavily, because the experience is so intense that it's nothing like LSD or mushrooms in many ways. You hit the climax point of the the indoor, boof, you are gone out of the body. It is you think you're not coming back. Let's put it this way. I, I've been on other low, other occasions where I was ripped out of the body and I thought, I'll never see my mother Because again. this is the thing. I mean, that's according to me, what I read, that it's the thing that's being produced when you are born and when you die. Yeah, they still haven't managed to prove that yet. But in terms of in rats, they have found high concentrations in the pineal gland. Rick Strassman in New Mexico ran trials on this. He's a scientist that never did any psychedelics, never studied psychedelics previously. And he basically shut his research down. He's like, there's no explanation for it. This is not a drug. 
It's a transportation device. And the, the, more, the more humanity, for lack of a better word, because we've discussed that, but the more we mature and the more we come into the self and the more we become more conscious and aware, and I don't mean more spiritual. I don't mean we're going to become more Zen. I mean, we're going to become, we, we mature and we can kind of see the, what these things are. The more these things are going to be used as the tools that they are, and they're not going to be categorized incorrectly as drugs like cocaine or, or ecstasy. And I think we're seeing that open. Even Thailand has just re, re, taken away psilocybin mushrooms from their narcotics. Yeah, because there's also a lot of research being done. It used to be done in the past with uh, MDMA, but, uh, you know, having people be more empathic and get over like depression before i'm going to end the podcast of course with some uh, safety rules like what to do when to do it how much to do it because i want to make sure that if people want to explore this that you give some guidelines you know what you know from delving into this do you have any view of uh, ayahuasca and masculine if those two maybe you could touch on like briefly they're not my uh, area of of expertise in it's actually illegal here in thailand like yeah. right on, on the farm but I, I it's really the here like it's 24 hours or whatever, no? <laughs> like what do you mean? I mean, I think like mushrooms, that's like six, oh, six eight it? hours, like, you know, LSD or eight, 12 hours. But the Yota seems to be like a whole day or like very long. That's what I heard, you know? Well, the famous, you know, Aldous Huxley experimented with mescaline a lot and his book, Doors of Exception, was about that mescaline experience. And again, with ayahuasca, it's not really my, my mode of expertise. I won't speak on that at length, but... In terms of, of safety, the guidelines are there, and the best book is The Psychedelic Experience by uh, Richard Alpert and mm. Timothy O'Leary. There you're going to get a step-by-step -step guide of exactly what you should be doing and really what you shouldn't be doing. And there's so much great infrastructure now, particularly with Stan Groff's foundation and his wife. They've set up some real great guidelines and even a call center where you can call these kind of like good Samaritans and you, they're going to explain to you, I think it's only available in the States, mm -hmm. but they're going to explain to you what to do and if you have a, any freak out. And, and even afterwards, because a psychedelic experience afterwards can leave you very, very unsure what the hell's going on. And it can it take a long time to integrate it. You've got to give some real space. I, I see a lot of people fall off the edge in our community. Because for, yeah, for, for me, I had a friend who was taking like LSD every weekend. And, you know, that's my perspective, right? Like I see that stuff as a date with myself, really a date with myself. And when you're going to do that every weekend, I feel you're raping. You're raping yourself. I mean, for me, it's precious. And then I have to let it sink in and have to let it integrate. And I don't know, because maybe you could give some guidelines. My guidelines would be your intention is important. Your surroundings are important. In the beginning, especially like when you're a control freak, make sure you have some freedom. You have some nice candy, a nice place, some nice music, some good friends that you can return to if you don't feel that good, etc. you know? And then just explore it, you know, and see what it's like with an open mind, you know, and then, then feel a bit safe. I would say like, that's a good way to like start it. Don't just take it like, oh, you know, yeah, you have this. Okay, let me just take it, you know, because you're in for like six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. It, or there's some like that book, definitely check that out. Or there's some kind of guidelines for anybody who wants to just introduce themselves. Like what are some ways that they could enter that world in a safe way that they don't have a bad experience or a very negative experience? I think, you know, what re would really help if you knew somebody that, or you can go to a place where they do this professionally. And there are many in Amsterdam, for the first time at least, if you go with another professional that, that knows what they're doing under control conditions. I recently administered uh, to my mother uh, for the first time. We did it under very calm, controlled environment. And I was there only as a supportive therapist, uh, if I was required. The experiences are very unique and introvert experience in fact if you've got too many people around and distractions you're not going to get the most out of something like an LSD experience because you need to focus inward in my experience you need to focus mm -hmm. inward and distractions on the outside is, is is going to distract you from that communication with the self with the, the mind of the cosmos I also think obviously never mix with anything else it's you never mix with alcohol you never mix with in my opinion and Timothy O'Leary would say the opposite uh, he used to say LSD is the plane and Ganja is the pilot. Uh, for me, I would never mix it with marijuana. I think it intensifies it too much. Uh, and, and what the mushroom has taught me, and this may not go for everyone else, the weed can be a very clingy spirit and it, and it can really interfere with that process. And it's very ironic that so many of our community 
mix it. I mean, they must get something from it. But for me, it's it's a strictly no mix, no mix these two. Yeah, and what about these people who have like say that they have flashbacks or they become psychotic or they jump off a apartment building? Me personally, often they combine it with other drugs, and it's people who have a very uh, psychological or psychiatric background. What are some uh, precautions you would say there? Because as I said, I want people to do this like in a responsible way. Read a lot about it. Be you know mature about it. What are some uh, things that you know about people having very negative experiences or becoming psychotic, etc.? What, what what were the reasons that those people had that experience? Or I think it's it's multiple factors. It's very circumstantial. It, it's about a kind of certain level of maturity. What are you mixing it with, and uh, what kind of supervision do you have? And so I really do think for the first time to be with an experienced psychonaut or or be in in Amsterdam, in a proper retreat, where you can, especially with the mushroom, the mushroom you can, it's being done now in ceremony all over and more and more people are doing it. That one, you can or even start yourself if you can't have access to that kind of thing. You start yourself on the very low doses, even the microdosing regime. The, the microdosing can do can do wonders as well if you're feeling depressed or you, you I mean, James Fadiman's work, you might want to check out. He recommends a, a subperceptual dose once every uh, three days. So you have one day on, two days off. And that can give a nice introduction to what, start to understand what the psychedelic is. Because first and foremost, many of us don't know what it is. We think it's a drug. You really have to get acclimatized with it as a as a doorway into, into yourself. It's going to, it's a psychedelic means mind opening. It's going to open your mind and and you acclimatize, go very slowly. There's no rush. You have, well, you have all many lifetimes to do it. But At what times when you use it as a crutch, do you have to drop the crutches? Because I can see like, oh yeah, just as any drug, you know, like, oh, I have it. I feel better that way. I'm, I'm a better person when I take it this way. Even if you like microdose or keep on taking it, isn't there a certain point then that you're like dependent on it and you need those crutches to have that perception or you tell yourself that story. And at that certain point, you it's best to like drop it. You say like, you know, you'd meditate also to get better, but at a certain point when you bring it into real life, you know, maybe you need less and less of that meditation as a, medication let's say you know yeah i mean alan watts talks at length at this and he he said the psychedelic is uh, medicinal not dietary you mm -hmm. take it as a medicine you don't take it as a diet i mean that that kind of goes with microdosing in in some way i think microdosing is very harmless and really helpful to people that are living in collective agreements that may not necessarily feed their soul for instance what i was talking about you know with the customer and the shopkeeper. If you're working in the corporate world to those kind of collective agreements that the whole thing about life is to make money, you know, chasing after something that doesn't really exist, then a microdosing regime will slowly help you break out of that. I mean, the problem is you may leave your job when you realize it's a complete mm -hmm. illusion. You might just say, you know, fuck this. this, this is not what I want. It's what I thought I wanted. And you kind of pull yourself out of that. I mean, there are some people in circumstances, single mothers working two jobs that need to pay the rent, that a microdose mm -hmm. day is a breath of fresh air. And so I, I do agree, though, that psychedelics in high dose, medicinal, not dietary, I think Alan Watts also used to say, use it as a microscope. You don't keep your, your eye glued to the microscope the whole time. You take a look and then go away and study and then go and take another look. For me, I've come to judge by intuition. If I'm feeling depressed or if I'm feeling like my addiction is calling me, I know that I'm yearning for unification and I'm learning, I'm yearning for the next lesson. If I'm relaxed and I feel it's almost like a, a buzzing bliss of light in the body, it's still, there's no thinking, the heart feels very full. If I'm in that kind of state, I don't need psychedelics. I'm I'm high. I'm I'm high in the moment, in the being, in my being. But, but if that starts to drift, I'm feeling a disconnect, then I use it as a medicine to, to reconnect. And you kind of learn that intuitively by being burnt, because I've been burnt. There's times where I rush to it again and again and again, and it kicked the shit out of me, you know? It's like, <laughs> it, it, it will kick your ass if you abuse it. It, it. it won't allow you to just keep dipping in if you're not integrating and learning the lessons along the way. And you come to treat it with such reverence and respect. And... You know, to end on that is remembering what the psychedelic is and, and ultimately what we're doing here. It's all an expression of love and the psychedelic is a doorway to love. 
And if you can find a way to love everything in every moment, and you can find a way to love every being in every moment, even if they cut you off in line or they do something that's shitty to you or it's a parent that you're not happy with because she did this or he did that, if you can still make that phone call and call and still say, you know what, I don't like you, but I love you, that is what we're ultimately aiming for here is to abide in love, to be an expression of love and to to give, to give and receive it, you know, together. And it really, with the vlog, I never talk about psychedelics in the vlog. There's no need to. My vlog is an artistic representation of, or at least I attempted to be an artistic representation of love. Sometimes I'm just talking about living in Thailand. But mainly I'm showing my relationship with my son, who is my guru. He's my biggest guru. He's a two-year-old, and he pisses me off all the time. <laughs> and he wants to play car all the time. But he is my teacher, and how can I remain in this moment with him playing that car? It's a pure expression of God, a pure expression of love. And I find when I do it, I become it. And it's such, such a beautiful practice. And that's because I see him as me. I see him as God. And I, I'm, I'm there. And, and that's our connection is so strong through that. And that's what comes out in the vlog. And that's what so many people comment back to me so for people who love this podcast and love what you do where can they find out more about your vlog and everything that you do yeah my my vlog is the naked guru in thailand and the podcast is the naked guru experience available on uh, spotify and yeah i'm usually quite active through facebook which is where we met right yeah and as a last question what is the story about the tattoo on your right arm <laughs> Oh, a lot of questions to end on. When, you know, one problem with dying and being reborn again and again and again is that sometimes a tattoo that you'll get doesn't, you don't, you don't believe it anymore because <laughs> your, your views on life change, but you got the tattoo. And so my tattoos were something Ryan believed when he was Ryan. And this one says, feel the fear, live the dream. Mm -hmm. And ironically, I've given up fear as a way of being because it just doesn't suit us. You can choose to live in fear or you can choose to live in love. I used to see fear as a, as a motivator mm. to be successful, to, you know, you're feeling that fear, you're living the dream. And it was, it was part of my ego of needing to be loved by others, needing to be relevant, needing to build something big, you know. I needed a big jazz bar and stuff like that. And when all that fell away with the death of Ryan, there was grief there, of course. There's some grief of when you die to who you think you are, you experience grief and, and a lot of confusion. And, and the tattoos remain, and they, I guess they're like a, a tombstone, they're like mm -hmm. a little, what do they call it? Is it an epilogue or an epigraph, what they carve mm -hmm. on a mm -hmm. tombstone? Yeah. But I guess that's what they are. And, and, and I'm glad that I have them still, even though I don't believe them. The, ironically, I have another one that says, Unus Vita, which is Latin for one life, which mm -hmm. is absolutely against everything I believe now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. That's interesting to see your whole journey to the underworld, your rebirth, you know, and then connecting and bringing love into the world. Thanks so much for your hero's journey and sharing it on the podcast. And I wish you all the best with everything that you do, Ryan. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast, brother. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.